0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlasky. Hey, listeners, how we doing? Before we get started, a quick editor's note. During the podcast, we talk about the recidivism rate dropping from 52 to 42% during a given time period. Actually, we're looking at the chart wrong, and the recidivism rate during that time period has actually remained pretty much unchanged. So without further ado, here's the podcast. So this is actually the second podcast, second of three, that we're recording in Bend the weekend of August 9th through 11th.
1: Not quite s- rational to schedule three things in the same day. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we are been drinking be, all night, but whatever. <laughs> probably going to be several weeks before this actually gets
0: posted, but what we, who we have here is Frank Patka. Frank and I went to high school together, and I'm probably going to screw up and call him Chaz at some point. But he's going by Frank now. I knew him as Chaz back in high school. So, Frank, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you. You didn't want to explain why... uh, I was going to let you do that. Oh, okay. So, my full name is Frank Charles Patka IV. Yes, I'm royalty somewhere. I just haven't found out (laughs) where. Bend, Oregon. If anybody knows and has money, please send it my direction. (laughs) Um, No, but so, as the fourth... I went by Chaz for the nickname growing up and that's where that one came from. Yeah.
0: Solid. And what we're talking about today is prison reform. And so Frank, why don't you tell us a little about, what, about your story and why you're passionate about this. Talk about your nonprofit a little bit.
2: Yeah, thank you, James. So, and thank you guys both for having me on here. Yeah, I, in 2010, I committed an armed robbery here in Central Oregon and was convicted uh, under the Measure 11 Act to 70 months for that armed robbery, seven, seven, zero. Yeah. 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 Two months shy of six years. And uh, in that process of going to prison, basically, uh, well, how I say it is going to prison was the best and worst thing that ever happened to me. And in that process, I learned a whole bunch about myself, but then also got to experience and see what actually happens in, within the prison system. And I don't know how well this will go, but as a white male who grew up in Bend, Oregon, a.k.a. White America, I have never faced any version of oppression in my life. And when I reached, when I went to prison, um, I got a little bit of taste of what other groups in this country face in a different way. And um, there were a lot of things that didn't sit right with me. And uh, but the, So that was on the negative side. But on the positive side, I also got a chance to meet a mentor, my first real impactful mentor who uh, led me down a path to start looking at success and look at business and then look at change, culture change. And uh, that kind of drove me to the point where I'm at now. As I got out of prison. I guess we're jumping a bunch right now. So, no, you're good. All right, we're gonna figure this one. No, out.
0: this is this is how the pod goes. <laughs> Sweet, just, just I love it. Talking. Very free flowing. Sweet, yeah, <laughs> love
2: it, love it. So, first off, if you want to learn more, I've got a TED Talk. Uh, if you look it up, Frank Patka, YouTube TED Talk, that tells you a lot about my story on that end. In the process of being in prison, I got a chance to have a mentor who introduced me to a new way of thinking, and uh, I got to carry that with me through that prison process and be part of a lot of culture-changing movements in the prison at Deer Ridge. So I was at prison in uh, Pendleton for two and a half, almost three years, and then closed out my sentence at Deer Ridge in Madras. And while I was there, I got the opportunity to be part of a grassroots movement called the Pro-Social Communication Work Group. And essentially, the mission behind that work group was to promote pro-social behavior, which would be basically behavior that benefits others or the community as a whole. And the idea was to promote that throughout not just the inmates in the prison system, but also with the staff as well. And it's something that's still going on today. Today it's a uh, um, more of a goal-focused organization that the mission of do your time with a purpose. So while you're there, how, what are you doing while you're there to build skills and abilities so when you get out you become a productive member of community?
0: That's awesome. And so now, so you got out about 2016,
2: right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, November 2015.
0: Oh, no. Okay. And so now you, you've started a nonprofit called Changing Patterns. What does Changing Patterns do? What's your mission, I guess?
2: Yeah. So um, Changing Patterns, the mission is we come alongside former inmates to connect them to resources, mentoring and employment opportunities for the purpose of giving them an opportunity to transition back into community successfully and as a productive member of community. It all started, when I got out of prison, I got to, I walked out with resources, so I had a family that allowed me to move into their house, um, I had support in getting a car, I had an employment opportunity, went to work for my dad's business, printer resources and recycling, shout out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, I also had a mentor, a gentleman by the name of Jerry, who was a key person coming in in the education realm. He had worked with COCC at the time and uh, became a mentor of mine. So I had these three things, mentorship, resources, and employment. Over a year, I watched friends of mine who, when we were in prison, we talked about not coming back, changing our lives, really doing something positive with our lives. And for years, we talked this, this story. And after I got out, I watched I watched guys go back to prison. I watched guys get shot and killed, and I watched guys kill themselves. And these are my friends. And and I started asking myself, what's the difference? Why them and not me? And when it came down to it, it was having none or of just or not all three of those uh, pillars, as we call them, for success. And so that's where Changing Patterns came from. We, it took me a couple of years to really get it going, and obviously I had to build my own credibility. Now we're a full-on 501c3 nonprofit organization and focused on building relationships with former inmates and then also organizations in the local area to be able to connect them with resources. And then us, internally, we provide a mentoring program. Fantastic. So I, for me,
1: I would – I'd be very curious for your thoughts because I feel like there is a – there's some, I would wager, small percentage of people who are incarcerated who, for lack of a better term, deserve to be there. They've committed some heinous act. They're mentally not sound. They're beyond the reaches of of any kind of rehabilitation efforts. But I would wager 60%, 80%, and this is my guess from the outside looking in, of the people who are incarcerated right now are – there for just completely bs reasons they are there for minor drug offenses traffic violations where they couldn't pay the ticket on time what have you and for us as republicans we we look to grow the economy we look to grow people's ability to to work for themselves and provide for themselves and their families and there is a a massive cost in incarcerating so many people, we have more people incarcerated in the United States of America than like,
2: than China and Russia put together. 22% of the global population of Of 22% America. I'm sorry. uh, America has 4% of the population of the globe. America has 22% of the incarcerated population of the globe.
1: It's there five and a half times around five and a half times more people than we should have incarcerated for what I would wager are again are just b s reasons, and both from a from a cost to the taxpayer and from a cost to that much less that the economy can grow because people are not now working, people are not now providing for their families, people are not getting educated, do you have a guess as to how many folks who are incarcerated would fit that bill as somebody that you would want to see on the outside? working and providing and thriving in a free united states of america
2: that's a great question um as far as the number i don't know what i do know is this and so you hit you actually hit quite a few things right there um, this is why we have a podcast i love it i love I hit it everything no, it's, it was money it was great i mean i'm trying to like okay click click click, click. remember them all so first off let it be known, I'm not against prison. I'm one, I'm not against prison. And surprisingly enough, I'm not necessarily against mandatory minimum sentencing. I am for reform. And so, right off the bat, black and white are both ends of the spectrum. And just like when you look up any averages or you're running statistics, you always take the, t- the highest and lowest number out. So, if we're going black and white, I will say, Stricter laws, very, very strict laws are the, you know, one side of the spectrum and very liberal, loose laws are the other end of the spectrum. I want to stay in the gray. And the gray is, yes, there are individuals in this world that should be incarcerated. (coughs) There are individuals that are incarcerated who should not be in prison for as long as they have. All of that is null and void if the correctional system in itself doesn't correct. Mm -hmm. So my big piece is recidivism, right? And so recidivism is the measurement of an individual or the the potential individual is going to reoffend within. It's measured standardly in three years. There's three different measurements of it. Getting arrested in the first three years of being released, getting convicted of a new felony or misdemeanor three years of being released, or getting put back into jail or prison. And I believe the middle one, if you are convicted of a crime post-release in the first three years, that's the true uh, measure of recidivism. Trying to focus on what you're saying and still like... Do all these things. You guys are great at keeping, keeping this stuff up. It's amazing. <laughs> so anyway, that, the piece about recidivism, though, is the measurement of how well the Department of Corrections is doing. And I think that's the big piece that we need to focus on is how well are people getting corrected. That's the uh, – I guess that's the measurement of how well the Department of Corrections is doing. And right now, actually, our recidivism rate has dropped a little bit from 52% as a, an arrest record are getting arrested to a 42 hmm. really percent now it's still 10 drop that's a it's yeah. a big that's drop
0: still a, a huge number
2: though however yeah if you look at it um my my uh my analogy is this if you go to subway and order a foot-long sandwich and you pay the seven dollars or eight dollars for the foot long sandwich and they come back with a six and a half inch or seven inch sandwich instead of the It was easier when it was 50%. It was (laughs) just easy. (laughs) But if if they came back with half a sandwich and then came back again and charged you again for the second half of the sandwich that you didn't eat, you would never go back to eat there, right? That's a terrible business model. Well, that's the business model of the corrections piece of Department of Corrections. And I think there's a whole mess of reasons why it is that way. You're talking about a giant ship with a ton of moving parts. But I do believe that there is a large percentage of people, to answer your question, finally. I do believe there's a large (laughs) percent of individuals who are in prison much longer than they have to be. I believe, for my case, um, it takes a heavy hand to teach me. I believe Measure 11 worked for me. I believe Mm. that I needed that time and I needed that discipline in order to go through things myself. However, there's individuals like a gentleman named Truett John Watts who, when he was 17 years old, killed someone. He called the police on himself, thought the guy was going to kill him, kill his parents, called the police on himself. By the way, this kid grew up in a home that was manufacturing meth, didn't know any other lifestyle at all, didn't have a choice, called the police on himself, went through court. The, ju- or the uh, attorney said, hey, we can, we can beat this on um, meth psychosis. You know, we'll get, we'll get this a lesser charge. They take it to trial. They offered him 10 years. They took it to trial. He lost. He got 25 to life under the Measure 11 mm-hmm. sentence. And so he's not even eligible for parole for another seven years right now. So I meet Truett. Truett John Watts has gone through HVAC, plumbing. He is going to college. He's writing papers on the comparison between Tolstoy. Tolstoy. yeah, Tolstoy and, um, other, other authors like this guy is a Hmm. person who would be an amazing, productive member of this community, but he has to sit and wait because of the laws and because of what's happening here. And and so there, yes, there are cases like that, that
1: um, are those publicly available. Like I'd be, I studied Russian literature. I'd actually be really curious to read that.
2: (laughs) I don't know. I can find out, but yeah, I'm not sure. I know it's through a college. Um, U of O has a great, uh, program where they bring college classes into the prison in salem
0: so i was just going to say kind of commenting on that i'm not sure i like mandatory minimums in general it it's not that it takes people out of prison who need to be in prison but it takes away the judge's ability to identify each case on its merits to your point you kill somebody or you know you commit a crime and there are a whole bunch of circumstances around that that Maybe we're outside your control. I mean, something, any, I can't think of a good example, but there, I'm sure there are myriad examples where there are lots of circumstances, but now you take that judge is no longer allowed to judge the case on its merits and put an appropriate sentence for that individual at that point in their career, their life. Now they have to do a mandatory minimum. The other thing I was going to say is we as society, as American society do a terrible job. Of making it easy on people when they get out of prison if you're registered if you're a felon you don't get to vote you don't get to own a firearm every single time you apply for a job you got to check that box yes I am a felon and then we expect these guys not to go back to crime you know if you're selling drugs or you don't have that support system that's probably the only way you can make money to support yourself to support your friends and family is going back to that lifestyle. We need to make it easier on people once you've served your time to get back into society.
2: I uh, need a whiteboard to <laughs> wipe, write down all your guys' <laughs> well, we're, things we're on, when you bring it up. We're on a podcast, so <laughs> like, nobody can see that anymore. <laughs> no, I know. I, that's just for me to remember the points that I need to hit based on what you're saying. No, it oh, was um, just a comment. Like, Yeah. There's... So the first off, the mandatory minimum sentencing. I want to dispel a couple misbeliefs um, that I've heard so far. And one, uh, so Measure 11 was actually inspired, and I, I dug this up the other day, was originally inspired because of the potential corruption. I haven't done enough research to say confidently, but there were cases where judges were giving lenient sentences to individuals Possibly because of favors, knowing people, I don't know. But well, there, Brock Turner, is a
0: good example. This is a the Stanford guy who mm-hmm. raped a girl and ended up with like probation or something, right? But that made national headlines. That judge is no longer a judge because mm-hmm. of all this. So, anyway, sorry. Continue with your point. I just- no,
2: you, it's a great point, and this is all rules are made in blood, right? All rules are written in blood. Something happened that caused some form of bloodshed that created that rule. However, maybe it's we as human beings are very reactionary. And a lot of times we go, oh my gosh, this judge did not do this correctly. So let's set a law to make sure judges aren't able to do that. Rather than going on your point about situational case factors and yes the problem with mandatory minimum sentencing is it takes the responsibility that the judge yeah that the judge is supposed to have to consider all these different factors because there's a big difference between the guy who runs around beating up people and the dad who got a hold of the guy who raped his son before the police did just like what happened um 20 years ago here in Bend, I won't say the name of the business, but there was a a dad walked into the bathroom and some guy was trying to molest his son and mm. the dad beat him up and the dad caught a measure over it. Really? So it was an assault too. Mm. And so one of the things is Measure 11, even though it was really promoted as a violent crime reduction law, basically... Oregon's version of the three strikes law. It also was inspired because judges weren't being integral in their decisions.
0: I think there's also a racial component to it as well. So this, this law was passed in 94. And I know that there was a lot of gang activity, in, especially in Portland in, in around that time frame. And one of the reasons for bringing it so basically, one of the things that Measure Eleven does is says if you're 15 or older, you're tried as an adult for these these particular crimes, person to person crimes. Yeah. So one of the reasons they wanted to bring it down to 15 rather than 16 or just leave it at 18 is to catch all these these gang members who are typically commit crimes between the ages of 15 and 18 and and throw them in prison for longer periods of time. Which again. Most of the gang members that they're referring to are are people of color, and so it's it was had this massive negative impact on on the the black community.
2: Uh, I tend to stay away from the racial side because one, that's not my channel, my vertical that I stand in. Like I'm not going to speak that I understand racial disparity. I mean. The, the most I understand about being a minority is being a white guy who is a boxer, uh, which, by the way, is a minority. Uh, no, um, but yeah, absolutely. There are – I do not deny one bit and there's a ton of evidence and you can actually – there's a documentary that I need to go – I've been told about called 13 that was all about removing voting rights. Oh, so um, in Oregon, felons can vote. You just can't vote when you're incarcerated. Hmm. And there's actually only two states, and I want to say it's Iowa and Kentucky, that – I guess we could look it up. You guys need it. I know. i, know. I know. To look so up Googling stuff like stuff Joe Rogan, right like the Joe Rogan stuff. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. You got to get that. Uh, so I believe it's Iowa and Kentucky. I know Florida used to be, but they just changed last year. Iowa and Kentucky are the only two states where you actually have to petition to get your voting rights back. Hmm. Everywhere else there are um, – so the meat of it is – like Oregon where you can't vote when you're incarcerated. And then the other side of the meat of it is you you can't vote until you're off parole and probation. And there's a small amount of states that you can vote while you're incarcerated. Um, So it's it's all state by state. So here, if you're incarcerated, you can't vote. And um, in my opinion, I haven't dug in deep. I actually believe at this point in time with the way our prison system is, Inmates shouldn't be allowed to vote when they're in prison because there is a level, there is a risk of threat from administration, from security officers, Mm -hmm. and uh, coercion over Mm -hmm. voting. Because what happens behind those walls is not what's talked about outside here. To give you an example, when I went to prison, on my way up, I was talking to people who had been in and out of prison for years, and they were talking about don't eat the trout. Don't eat the fish because it says shark bait made not for human consumption. It's shark and it says on the box not not for human consumption. So through the entire time I was in prison, that was still continuing on and and there were Mm. supposedly lawsuits, everything else. I believe it was 2016, maybe 2017, but I was definitely out of prison when finally that lawsuit came to fruition and it got exposed publicly. So we're talking, I was in prison for almost six years, and that was old news. Hmm. So if you imagine that's how long it takes for some sort of an injustice to get out there, imagine if you have a prison of 1,600 inmates, like in Pendleton at EOCI, where I was at, and you have a staff that can create a coordinated, coercive movement saying, hey, if you guys don't vote this way, we can make your lives very miserable. So, at this point in time, I would say the the Department of Correction system isn't in a place to be able to have the integrity to a, to give inmates the ability to vote in a safe place
1: until they kind of fix their institutional, like the infrastructure problems of a prison itself. It's it's not that inmates can't be trusted or can't like mm-hmm. think through the the choices. It's just that they are
2: grossly susceptible to
1: the maniacal potentially powers of the few
2: that and gangs and the influence of other inmates too. you go to prison and you go back 30, 40 years. Like hmm. there's racial segregation. I don't, I wouldn't live with another race. Like that's part of hmm. the rules. Like there's a convict set of rules. It's, you know, you don't live with another race. It, it goes back about 30 years, 40 years. <laughs> we even <laughs> not use mail still. That's,
1: that's <laughs> interesting. Can I, can I ask, uh, like, I've got a couple of friends who are like doctors and nurses and stuff, and they'll talk about like scrubs versus ER versus Grey's Anatomy. Do you watch, you know, Orange is the New Black or Shawshank Redemption or anything like have you ever seen anything in popular media that listeners might just be able to like pull up on Netflix or whatever that like gives a decent sense of like what's going on or something that's been – grossly mischaracterized and you're just like tim robbins can't escape
2: through the plumbing <laughs> like what is this <laughs> um, so first off funny story you want to know why cops is on tv it's because everybody and their mother who's in prison still watches cops and i don't know and that's very <laughs> that stuff. was very generalistic and known it's not everybody but i was surprised how many people in prison were watching shows like cops lock up I'm sitting here going you guys are literally watching other guys in prison while you're in prison there's like a camera crew I following mean, the next guy down the line yeah right? like I don't, I mean you could probably do that mirror image of it like I mean you know whether you into woo woo stuff or law of attraction or whatever but I do believe that what you pay attention to comes into your life mm-hmm. you, you just can't not like if you keep paying attention to something you're gonna start moving towards it so it blows my mind when people watch that stuff when they're in prison no, I do not watch that. Like I just, I've tried to watch Orange in the New Black, and it. Ju- I tried to watch one episode of that Jailbird show or whatever that uh, came on Netflix. Yeah. It's. I was gonna use a word that is not PC. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> a different word that starts with an R. Um, it's just it. I it. So I think there's two sides to it. I think one, it's promoting, entertaining to people to watch this stuff, and. I will give it on a positive side. The reason why I got my, the coach I got for my Ted talk, she was interested in my story because she was watching origins of the new black and it gave me an opportunity to uh, meet Joanne. And now she's a board member on my board, like great relationship. So that came from it. But I would say there's a lot of Hollywood in those. And I would also say there's probably a good message for the right people who are watching it. It's not me though. I'm not trying to watch prison stuff. It's, I, I was joking the other day, I've gone back to Deer Ridge now twice this last month, and I'm, I'm starting to go back on a regular basis. And I was like, man, when I got out of here, I was like, I'm never coming back. I've been back like seven times now. <laughs> <laughs> At least I get out every day. Yeah. So enough. I let's move to more of a like a
0: solutions mm-hmm. space here. Yeah. So you've mentioned you're not totally opposed to mandatory minimums. Um, what What steps do you think that are elected leaders could take to make this, uh, to lower recidivism, to
2: make the, the correction system better and more effective? You always have an incredible opportunity when you get a large group of people together because it makes it so much easier to share information, knowledge. I mean, we can talk one to one right here, right? I can have a conversation with you. I can yeah. have a conversation with you, Nick, and one to one all day. And that's how information used to be passed back. You know, two hundred years ago, you got a guy riding a horse. He sees something amazing. He has to ride a horse miles down to tell the next person. So information doesn't get shared that quickly. Well, now we have podcasts. We have all these different things. But when you get a group of people together in one spot, if a great leader can step in and go, hey. What do you guys want to learn? My best friend, my brother, Neil, he told me when I was in jail, he said, use it like you're going to college. You're going to get a four, you know, five, six year degree. It was before we figured out how much time I was going to do and use it like you're going to college. And how many times have you in your, I'm sure, busy lives have had an opportunity to just go, I'm going to take a year off and just focus and study and learn something and not have to worry about finances not have to worry about food, not have to worry about shelter, not have to worry about any of these things, right? We have that available. There's 14,700 um, inmates in Oregon right now in the prison system. That's 14,000 people who we can start educating and not just like forcibly, you know, now you take math, now you take this. No, it's ask, what do you want to do in your life? If you could do one thing in your life, what would it be? find out that little gem that little flame of that that spirit inside of each person go okay how can we utilize this time that you're here to help you prepare to become someone who can achieve that and that's where the class uh defining your chief aim that i started at deer ridge that was its whole purpose i got introduced to the book think and grow rich by napoleon hill that book changed my life drastically i had an opportunity to create basically like almost a book study group, a 16-week book study group about that book. And it was all about finding your purpose, finding that one chief aim that you'd like to accomplish. Because as Robert Kiyosaki says, focus is follow one course until successful. And the people who reach incredible achievement and incredible influence pick a vertical and they go with it. And they become the best at that and then they influence that out. And so I believe... It's education, and using the opportunity you've got all these people in one spot. How do you help influence them to find their own personal purpose, and understand and respect that the pro-social world, the world of actually helping others and working with others, is a very successful model?
1: Well, and you know, I, like I've never thought about it in that way before, but that's. Y'all might know better than me, University of Oregon is twenty five thirty thousand people or my wife is a beaver. I'm wearing an Oregon state shirt right now. Oregon is State is twenty twenty five thousand people or whatever. There's a pretty good chance that that's the third biggest university is the Oregon Correctional System. Mm. and if that could be the one thing that people who walk out of there, the people who are going to walk out of there could leave with is an education and usable, tangible transferable skills and just like people graduate in college it's expected that you're going to go get a job and earn a living and work for yourself if people would be walking out of there with something you know more ethereal like your your buddy who's you know reading Tolstoy and writing papers on Russian literature or if it's something more tangible you said he was doing hvac things if it's something like that like whatever it is your skill set is whatever it is the thing that you want to be doing and you find value in walk out of there knowing how to do it and just you should be able to be able to walk into a job and be able to like earn something for yourself because I, you know, James mentioned before, but it's like, that's the recidivism rate has gone down dramatically. It's gone down by 20%, but it's still 42%. And I have to wager, again, you would know better than me. I have to wager that that's due in large part to the fact that so many people have to check the box. So many people have to deal with the stigma that they've got. So many people don't have the support system. And if your choice as Joe's company, hvac or russian literature or whatever uh, hiring a felon between a non-felon like you're you know like, well I, I don't know if i want to deal with that i don't know if the skills are there like if you know that the skills are there if you know that they've done the work they've had the education they've had the practice they've done this they've worked with peer groups that's a
2: no-brainer right there and that that would be incredible absolutely and what you, what you're saying right there is i believe the solution everybody wants to feel valuable everybody wants to have purpose everybody there's these you've got our needs you know like food shelter water but there's also uh these other needs these more intangible needs of the need to feel loved the need to belong there's a reason why 18 19 20 year old kids who go to prison join gangs because one yeah. they're scared but two they want to connect they want to mm-hmm. one of them the, that family yeah that, that and, and connection yeah prison's lonely like you're in prison with 1,600 or if you're at a minimum, maybe you're at prison with 700 other people, but you're alone. Loneliness is probably the worst part about prison. And if you can create some sort of camaraderie with people, you're going to soak that up. And so what we would like to do is, is take that and go exactly what you're talking about. is Let's invest in value. Let's make sure these individuals who are getting out, because the ones like when I was at Minimum, my message to people was like, hey, everyone here is getting out of prison. Yeah, We should all be invested in each other's success because you're going to be my mom's neighbor. You're going to work at the restaurant I I go to. You know, You're probably going to drive down the road where my nephews walk. I want you all to be at your best because selfishly you could end up hurting my family and vice versa. So if we actually invest in this and go – How can we get everybody to see one find and see their own value and to start to see that there is a way there that you get out and community supports you community believes in you and community wants to help you. And I firmly believe at least in my experience, it worked for me, I walked out, and I was showered in support love and i had the opportunity to speak in front of a city club two months after i got out about what we were doing in prison so by the way which is another piece i had to air out all my bs right at the beginning of getting out i have there was no hiding i'm an ex-convict there was no hiding in that like two months out i tell the you know the 200 or 300 leaders of our local area that hi my name is frank packer i just got out of prison for armed robbery and this is what we were doing in there was great and it set me up in an amazing way and that's why I want to encourage other former inmates to consider being tactful yes but consider being more transparent especially the ones that are being successful and that have changed their lives because it's so important to change the paradigm that individuals who have once lived a criminal lifestyle but have reformed people need to hear those stories and people need to know that there are inmates getting out of prison who can become incredible assets to the community and incredible influencers. And all we have to do is literally encourage them, offer mentoring, teaching them, offer them resources to be able to provide for themselves and protect themselves. And then also offer them uh, opportunities, projects and employment to give them a sense of value. And I I really think that there's a huge solution there. I think you're
1: exactly right. I think it's like, fantastically easy for somebody who has not known the life that you've known to hear the first sentence of your story that you had just started on and just start down the rabbit hole of assumptions and this that and the other thing and i mean you just heard the stats 42 percent still recidivism Mm -hmm. and it's so much more difficult to highlight the successes it's so much more difficult to point to somebody that says hey this system for lack of a better term worked for this person. Somebody came out, somebody went in after doing something wrong and something illegal and then and then here she came out and it worked. They came out better on the other end. This is a shameless plug. This is why we got a podcast to tell our stories, right? <laughs> right. We're, exactly. we're doing everything we can, but like that's a that's a fantastic point to make. So
0: the last, well, so I'm not sure what order these are going to get posted in, but we we just as of the recording of this, just today released an episode about the Republican party platform convention which i will be attending as a as a delegate i think i've pretty much decided that i'm going to be a part of the law and order plank to try to influence mm-hmm. so i don't know how familiar you are with the with the platform uh I know as so, familiar oh, as a podcast <laughs> hopefully not very <laughs> <So> <laughs> is is about there 14 minutes about <laughs> <laughs> is is there like something that you would love to see the Republican Party stand for like a, you know, maybe one to two sentence or paragraph that would be like,
2: you know, we support something, something. Former inmates returning to community as productive members. That's it That's right good. there. A hundred percent. And it hits all areas. So I will say in my work that I've done with changing patterns so far it's been highly people a lot of the people I work with are on the democratic side they're democrats for sure because that's their wheelhouse reform I think when I went to the Reagan dinner and I said the word progressive and reform and the first lady who I was talking to amazing lady it was great um she, uh, she was like, don't use the word progressive here. <laughs> she's do like, you might. And then we started talking about prison and everything. And she's like, yeah, no, I agree. And she's like, I think you're in the wrong party. <laughs> I was like, well, I want to change that because I think I'm not. And so, yes. So here, here's why. Here's why. I'm so director, the director of Department of Corrections, Colette Peters, went to Norway and learn so much about their prison system over there. And she's coming and she is implementing things into this system here, which is amazing. I completely support it. However, that's in the system. What, where I'm focused on is what happens when they get out. Mm-hmm. And I believe a hundred percent that if we invest in these individuals, when they get out and we invest in mentoring is so huge, people have to be taught and we have to acclimate. We have, we have, formulas on how to acclimate a goldfish into a new uh, into a, a new tank or whatever, but where's our formula to acclimate a former inmate or a military vet? I just was speaking with Kobo the other day. There are so many similarities in the transition from mm. vets, especially combat vets, and former inmates mm. as they release. If we focus on providing them the, the initial resources for it, and it's not a lifelong thing. It's literally like... Six months to a year, give them a place where it's safe, that they can rebuild and get used to being independent again. Because right now, the Department of Corrections is creating dependence. You get told when to eat. You get told when to go outside. You get told when to go to bed. You get told when to stand up, sit down, When you can go, you know, you're in that system for so long, you and you you just, you just start listening to the bell. Oh, it's chow time. Get up, walk. You get out of prison and basically you see your PO and your PO is like, all right, you got to get a job. If you don't have a place, go to the BI. But most people at least have some form of housing by the time they've gone out of prison and go get your food stamps and check in in a week. And then you're like, where do I go? What do I start with? And it's just so overwhelming. I remember when I got a car, I bought a car and like the next month, you know, I paid for insurance and then the next month wasn't making a ton of money. I had insurance again and it was felt overwhelming. I was like, Oh man, how am I going to pay for insurance? It's stupid, right? It's ridiculous. But when you haven't had those, haven't been performing those things over a long period of time, and then all of a sudden they're thrown back in your face again. It can be overwhelming, which is why I believe coping skills are incredibly important. So I would say if the Republican Party can do anything, it would be focused on how do we help these individuals that are getting out, regardless, connect to the resources, mentoring and employment opportunities so they become productive members, which creates safer communities, which creates a stronger economy, which creates a more inclusive community where people feel valued which reduces crime I mean, they just, it's it's across the board.
0: Honestly, you'd think this would be something that would be bipartisan that everyone can get on board mm-hmm. with. I think you know, reducing recidivism rates is in everyone's best interest. Mm-hmm. You know, not just the the people who are going back to prison, but you know, just society in general, the cost to the taxpayer, literally everyone is
2: $49,000 a year for every inmate. Jeez. That's yeah. times that by 14,000. Oh, and by the way, uh, the average healthcare cost per month per inmate, I think it's like 500, maybe a little less. Hmm. You guys are paying for that, by the way.
1: Yeah. So that's what that's exactly what I was just going to go nail on. And that's, you know, Republicans are. the the law and order party and, uh, you know, throw the book at them and whatever. But Republicans are also the fiscally responsible party. And if you just said 42%, which is down, which is down this year, 42% in 10 10 people are, are going back 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 within three years. Mm. And the cost is crazy. $40,000. $49,000, Forty thousand dollars, forty-nine thousand, close to fifty thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars a year, a year insurance. <laughs> to the taxpayer that that we are paying for, it and it versus the cost of a a six-month to year-long program to get people up and running, and that's I know you mentioned you weren't a a, a consumption of popular media on the subject, but that was. I haven't seen Shawshank Redemption for 15 years or whatever. But it, well, that was one of the storylines is that yeah. was the, one of the guys, I think red is the character's name. He gets out and he's a, a bagger yeah. at a grocery store. And there's just one shot mm-hmm. where it, like he raises his hand. And he says, boss, can I have a bathroom break? And the guy says, y- y- look, you've been here for like three weeks. You don't need to ask no, every single time. Just, mm-hmm. it takes 45 seconds. Just go and come back and keep doing your job. And, He just, he had this look and he, he hung himself. Yeah. And you earlier on this episode, you mentioned the number of people where suicide is involved, people who die by suicide because they are not able to cope with this and grasp with this with the world that they, you know, they now have these choices in. And it's like. You know, I hate to sound like a bad Republican, but like forget <laughs> that we're, we're bad Republicans. I was you know, saying, are, you okay. guys, you guys already locked we out. We already in are. Right? Exactly. <laughs> I've mean, well before. I got, this.
2: I got liberal friends that are listening to this thing. Maybe, like, <laughs> um, maybe I, maybe yeah. I don't like these guys. <laughs> but like, and the, the cost
1: is like is insane to for recidivism rights, but forget the cost for a second, the cost in human lives mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for the number of people who have gone back and died by suicide for something that is mm-hmm. fantastically preventable mm-hmm. that we're doing nothing for. That's the cost. That's a massive cost. Mm-hmm. We as society are
0: real good at taking someone who made a mistake who got, and, and just tossing them aside, just saying, Oh, you're in this bucket now of bad people, of felons who, and we're just not even concerned with you. And I, I think that needs to change. We need to stop just demonizing these people and putting them
1: in a bucket. I, I didn't an think answer two of my wife's texts last night when we're sitting here playing poker. She's not going to let that go for 10 years. I can't imagine the, the level of mistakes that other people get. That <laughs> we just hang on
2: them for decades. <laughs> there's um, you know, there's a lot of similarities between marriage and prison. That's what I've heard. <laughs> That's what I've heard. That's why I, I won't get married. You know? uh, no, but I, I want to be hopeful here and say that I believe the needle is moving, and I think we're moving in the right direction. I really do, and it's easy to sit back here and bash the Department of Corrections. It's easier to sit back here and bash all sorts of stuff. But it reminds me, you guys had um, that lovely lady on about foster care, mm. mm-hmm. and she was talking about DHS and how DHS got sued because they had kids in hotel rooms because they didn't have places, but They didn't have places because there's a mandate. Mandate. Here's your mandatory. Mandatory. DHS cannot refuse a Mm. child. It's not who you're gonna sue. You gotta sue that policy. It's not the people. Mm. DHS doesn't want to put people in uh, hotel rooms, but. Don't sue them for it. Like, Figure out a solution. Go, okay, instead of suing them, let's let's go find more housing for them or whatever. So it's the same thing. I think it's the same thing here with the prison reform thing. It's a hot topic, which I love. I, I totally caught this wave, great. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's a hot topic, but I really think there are great things happening. And whether you believe in Trump or anything else, and I know what your guys' opinions on that is, he did sign the First Step Act. And if you look into the First Step Act, Step Act. It was focused on release and recidivism and reducing that on a federal level, but it, it being brought into the federal level will start to trickle down and influence on the state level. And like I said, Colette Peters, the director of Oregon Department of Corrections, she is very progressive uh, <laughs> on. Creating... You can say that on our podcast. All right, it's awesome. all right. <laughs> so the needle is moving, and like I said, it was fifty-two percent last year. Our recidivism rate from that cohort, the 2015 cohort, is 42 percent, which, again, I want to shout out. That's my cohort. We're doing this. We're reducing here, here. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers on that one. Definitely. So
0: just your Trump comment, I think that we tend to take our politicians doing the same thing we do with our inmates or, you know, people who have been to prison and put them in a good bucket or a bad bucket. And I, I see that with Trump all the time. I I was at a Multnomah County Republican meeting, and one of the questions that was asked is, "Do you support Donald Trump?" And I'm like, "It is way more complicated <laughs> right. than a yes or no. <laughs> like, I the man can do good things. Mm-hmm. The man can also do bad things. Mm-hmm. Can we just call call them what they are?" And I don't know. If, I don't think I'm going to vote for Trump. I didn't vote for him the first time, but like he he does everything he does isn't bad. Absolutely. And uh, you know what? <laughs> I, I want to
2: tell you guys. I am – being a politician is insane to me. Like we as a community or society go, if someone – like it's so black and white. From from the from the the viewer the consumer's perspective, right? I would not want to be a politician, and I'm afraid that, <laughs> like my friends tell me, I'm going to wind up in it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I worry about it for sure. Um, but are you kidding me? Like everything you do is attached to who you are in the perspective of people. You kidding me? That is the highest pressure. You've talked yeah. about, you know, wanting to run for office and do different things. I, I think you're insane. Like no, no, <laughs> no. Are you kidding me? Like, that is the most thankless job on the planet. And no, I don't <laughs> I didn't vote for Trump. I didn't vote for Hillary. I haven't found anybody I've been I really, really look up to and find a leader that I really like yet. But uh I do as far as from that last camp that last presidential campaign. We got to give them a little bit of a break, all of them. Like, just they're human beings. Yeah. Like, at the end of the day, they're human beings. Now, the whole Epstein thing is a whole different thing. (laughs) I, which I just,
1: that just happened this morning for our listeners. Whenever this goes up, yeah. Yeah. That just just
2: happened this morning. Yeah. Which a lot of, somehow he died when the camera malfunction, I'm just put out the camera malfunction under watch guard. And that dude had a lot of names.
1: Yeah. yeah,
0: Yep. So we're actually about at the end of the podcast. So we like to ask our guests, "Who is your favorite?" Well, we usually ask, "Who's your favorite Republican?" But I guess we can. I don't. You're not actually registered Republican, are you?
2: So I registered Democrat when I was 18 years old to rebel against my conservative (laughs) Republican (laughs) parents. So then, who's their favorite Republican? Who's who's their favorite Republican? Dad uh, voted for Trump. Watch yeah. him just eat eggs on his business now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Sorry, Dad. Um,
0: so who's who's your favorite politician at this point?
2: So I'm going to do this two ways. One, I love Teddy Roosevelt. Mm, I think nice. he's the last hero. Mm. I mean, as far as president. Like, True dude was a cowboy. Word, yeah. Dude was a cowboy. He went and fought. He went and talked. He did, I mean, he's the last president, that when I look back, where I go, yeah, I'll get behind him. And just like I told the people campaigning for Kate when uh, they were doing the um, governor's race, I was like, "Show me someone I can vote for, and I'll vote." That's that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for someone that I I will follow. And as of right now, um, you know, as we talked earlier, uh, I'm a big supporter of Tulsi Gabbard. I think she is walking into this race. Um, I, I man, I would love to see her come out with uh, a potential win. I don't think she's going to hit that one just because of the way politics work and everything else, but she's young enough to continue running. But I think she's spreading a message of peace focused on how do we make our country.
1: Don't say it. <laughs> don't say it. <laughs>
2: You almost said it. (laughs) I'm sorry, Tulsi. I'm sorry, Tulsi. I'm sorry, Jack. Uh, uh, So, uh, yes, no, but she, she, her focus is peace, love. Let's pull back these regime change wars. Let's focus on mental health. Let's focus on prison reform. I think, There is a little too much in all of the Democratic candidates. There's a little too much um, promoting things that won't exist. Trump had his wall. Right now, Andrew Yang has universal um, basic income. uh, income. Tulsi's talking about uh, freeing everybody with a marijuana charge. Those are really big claims. I'm not really into, like, let's get everybody out. Like, do you know how much paperwork that is? (laughs) (laughs) Like, who's going to do that? Like, the whole check the box thing. You're talking about check the box thing? Technically, the Ban the Box Act, whatever, went went into effect two years ago. But who's actually going to take the box off the applications, (laughs) right? Mm. You can institute a policy, but the other side of it is who... Is gonna take the box off, and I think what I want to see out of any of these presidential candidates, Democrat, Republican, or the other parties that really wish they could be stronger. I think give me one plan, one strategic plan. That's all I want to hear is one strategic plan. You got your three points that you're gonna hit healthcare, prison reform, whatever, military stuff but show me one plan to show us that you can actually strategize, that you're not just claiming these claims. Let me see your policy. Let me see what's your plan to enact that, and I think I can get behind that. So I would say Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt, hero, and then I'm I'm rooting for Tulsi. Tulsi the
1: Pulse man. I Tulsi you know, the Pulse. I think like every Democrat, there's stuff that she'll say that I disagree with, but she puts a lot of ideas out there and presents them in a fantastically cogent, narrative-driven way that I just, just the second debate. Again, we're recording this. That just happened a week and a half ago. And yeah. So many people were just like, oh my God, like never heard of her before, but I got to go Google some more. There was somebody put the graph up of Google searches Most of all the candidates Google. just skyrocketed for mm, her.
2: Skyrocketed. And then, and then she's suing Google for like affecting the something happened where oh. like all her ads got. Oh really who knows man interesting this is why i hate politics and love it at the same (laughs) time because it's such a movie i mean there's so much like potential corruption whether or not it is but it's there and it's enough of it and the potential is enough of it to make it exciting too so there you go i don't envy you for your uh (laughs) desires of what you want to do but i'm definitely rooting for you (laughs) thanks man all right well frank again
0: thanks so much for coming on the podcast uh listeners, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Rational Republican. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting service, or you can listen on our website, jamesaball.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, and if you're feeling extra generous, you can visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash rational republican. Again, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.